like the American dream, right? It's like you, you spend your life working for your retirement. Golly, what a lot of shit, man. I would tell young Lori to slow down and allow the season to do its work. Don't say healthy, don't say happy. Don't say well, and don't say normal. You show me one person on the planet who's healthy, happy, normal, and well. Who is that person? Is there something good that can be gained quickly? I don't know. We are really in the Christmas season. What? Everybody else isn't... Yeah. Huh? No, we are. Because if it's today, and today is Tuesday, then Sunday was December 2nd, which was also the first Sunday of Advent, which means, first of all, Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, It's the start of the liturgical year, and it's like Christmas for real. We have a tree. We put lights on it. Everybody else has lights. We have neither of those things. Yeah. So you're behind is the message of this podcast. (laughs) <laughs> the message to me. Yeah, we're setting this one in time. Um, a lot of other podcasts can really happen at any point, but we do exist in a time and a place. And this is a season that we really love and has gotten, I think, smeared with consumerism and politics and blah, blah, blah. But there's beauty in the liturgy and in the tradition. And it's been a tradition of our family to do Advent, um, so much so that I would do it without thinking. And when someone would ask, like, what is that? And why are you guys lighting those candles? And what are you reading? That I would be like, this isn't something everybody's doing. Yeah. I think part of the desire in doing an episode that won't exactly be evergreen is to go, for a lot of young guys, the season around Christmas can just be a stressful letdown. So much so that the themes that circulate in our culture around Christmas are all about disappointment, stress, recovery, that's what's happening. And I think if I evaluate the situation from my point of view, I think that the problem is that for my early life was I wanted Santa to bring me presents and that was what made Christmas great. And then you transition out of that. But without some instruction in Advent, you don't transition into anything but it's, it's true that sort of Santa is soda and Advent is exceptional scotch. They're both enjoyable, but there is a maturity that you go through by which you rise from the lesser Christmas to the higher Christmas of really being able to enjoy it again. That's very Ron Swanson of you. That sort of assumes that anybody with a decent palate is going to enjoy a good scotch. Well, even if they got a bad palate, they have a decent mind for analogy going to work. I think we're safe. The first thing that I wish we could do in introducing Advent is to watch the final trailer for Rogue One that was dubbed Hope or Rogue One Trailer 2 sometimes. It's kind of hard to find on YouTube nowadays, but I don't think fair use agreements would let us do it. But the reason that trailer is so awesome about framing Advent is it starts... And there's these sort of high atmospheric notes and you have this dad character kneeling to go, whatever I do, I do to protect you. 
say you understand, and then an explosion, and suddenly you see the story is in motion, and she's in prison. I hope you've seen Rogue One. It's so good. But then it's, you know, your father's key to the development of a super weapon. And if the Empire is this kind of power, what do we have? We have hope. Rebellions are built on hope. And then it just goes into like this incredible, you know, they have no idea we're coming. Make 10 men feel like 100 kind of thing. This The rebellion and then Sil Guerrero's lines of save the rebellion, save the dream. That trailer is a perfect, succinct expression of what Advent is. Because the first Sunday of Advent is simply hope. And it is the sort of banner rising in the middle of the world, in the middle of a rebellion that is underway, going. The Empire has a super weapon, and it happens to be, you can see it everywhere in the affliction of the human heart, we have this guerrilla band involved in a knockdown, drag-out fight for the restoration of the Earth culminating in Christ's coming, and that is what is happening. Yeah, so Advent is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, and they each have a particular theme and a story and this journey you're meant to be going on. And it's more than just the candle version of like a daisy chain where you're counting down there is a there's a story there's a narrative there is a something that we love doing here of like trying to put ourselves back into the larger context um and i think as a culture that we're more drawn these days to liturgy it's something that i've seen there's a power to it there's something of not needing to be inventing something for the first time so if you're someone who does advent I think you're going to be nodding your head right now going like, yeah, this is awesome. Like, let's, let's do it. But this is also kind of like an intro for people that might not be familiar with it. And I would also encourage folks that aren't familiar and are a little bit uh, hesitant of things that are liturgical to, to give it a moment because what it is doing, it is reestablishing our place in a story, renaming what it is that we're hoping for and what it is that this season is about. There's a great quote that I love by Chesterton about tradition. It goes, tradition means giving a vote to most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. I love that quote because it is this, you exist at in the tradition of Christianity as this greater group of people who have been hoping for Christ's arrival and are hoping for it again. And Advent is a wonderful way to go into the season that is very different than the heavily scent of cinnamon and annoying little jingles and flashing lights that have infiltrated most public spaces these days. Yes. Liturgy, of course, just meaning public working functionally. What is the public expression of a something? And so when we say liturgy, we're talking about this this yearly performance of the story we're living in. And hopefully your year has rituals that remind you of the things that you love, that the spring mountain biking trip reminds you of the love of wilderness, that the fall 
party is a celebration of the summer and a reflection on sort of the joy of family and community life. And there is a performative nature to our schedules already. And we have this incredible resource to draw on in the yearly celebration and participation in everything awesome about the story we're living in, in the form of a liturgical calendar, which happens to be to start in Advent, which is such a cooler way of going. Chris, I just love Christmas not being the end of the year, but Christmas being the beginning, the four Sundays of Advent being the first four Sundays of the year. And it's going to go through the, the Annunciation, the birth of Jesus. It's going to go through the visit of the Magi, obviously into the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension, then on into Pentecost and sort of forward we go every year. One of the things I wanted to try today was going, okay, the first Sunday of Advent is supposed to do a couple things, uh, but mostly you start the year by longing for the second coming of Jesus. And you sort of do that by looking back at the first coming of Jesus. There's this incredible line Carl Barth wrote that unfulfilled and fulfilled promise are related to each other like dawn and sunrise. Both are promise and in fact the same promise. If anywhere at all, then it is precisely in the light of the coming of Christ that faith has become Advent faith, the expectation of future revelation. But faith knows for whom and for what it is waiting. It is fulfilled faith because it lays hold of a fulfilled promise. I love his. It's the same desire. Like the first light of dawn and the sun is the same event. And the coming of Christ and the incarnation reflect the same thing being the end of time and the restoration of all things. But by reflecting on the fact he's fulfilled a promise, it's the same promise that he'll fulfill all things. And it just gives us this sort of resonant, come Jesus. Right, because the the temptation that time can do is that it can turn Christmas into the the scene of the the crash it's the away in the manger it's the little the little baby in the in this scene and that's kind of all it is it's this thing that happened and we kind of remember it and it was amazing and depending on what church or what tradition you might have there might be a lot of celebration about the fact that god became man something worth celebrating and sitting in but that becomes all past oriented it doesn't actually have implications for the present or hope for the future when it's just this this one scene kind of unfolding over and over and over again. And so, yeah, like the fact that it is meant to remind and be basically pointing towards the promise of the next promise to be fulfilled. I mean, that's what it's all about. Here it is explained in an early iteration of the Catechism. When the church celebrates the liturgy of Advent, It makes present this ancient expectancy of the Messiah. For by sharing in the long preparation for the Savior's first coming, the church renews its ardent desire for his second coming. By celebrating the precursor's birth and martyrdom, the church unites herself to his desire. It's one of my favorite lines. This is a way of uniting ourselves with the desire of Jesus, which is for the restoration of all things. 
And we do that by performing this reflection and participation in remembering what it was like for him to come and expecting that he'll come again. So I'm going to read you something. Actually, I'm excited that you get to hear this to you, Sam, because you'll hear it again later when mm. we do like a family thing. But as I was writing this week and thinking about what does it look like to really remember what the longing was for the coming of the Messiah in his first coming in the incarnation? And then what does it look like? Like, where are we when we are longing? And it came out of so many good things listening and listening to the great hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, going, oh my gosh, let's remember in the first instance what was happening when people were calling for Emmanuel, for God with us to come. Like, And let's go, where are we now exactly in time? And just going, uh, wow, we need to remember. If you, you're going to end up being one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, uh, but more likely, given age restrictions, you're one of the parents of those folks, and you are wanting the Messiah to come, and you've waited for the Messiah for a really, really long time, including 400 years of silence at the beginning of the New Testament. Uh, this is a reflection on what would it be like to be that person, then where are we? So get into your zone of imagining some craziness, and let's walk through this. Picture the conquered world you occupy. If you're lucky, you live in a land the Greeks call Palestine for the Philistines, though it is more likely you live in ancient Iraq or late Greece. Your family is battered and stretched and cut off in the dim kingdoms of Persia, Syria, Jordan, and Turkey. You live at the end of 400 years of silence. True, there are itinerants, slapdash prophets, coming through with special access to God, but none of them is tested and confirmed since Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, whose final delivered promise hangs tired in the air. I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Elijah's not shown up. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are so long dead, not even your grandmothers, 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 grandmother remembers them. You've seen Persia conquer the world, and then from the west, the rumored Macedonian Alexander the Great, Aristotle's pupil, comes sweeping back through Gaza a hundred years post-Malachi. Fifty miles from Jerusalem, every man was executed and every child was sold a slave, and he drove on to Babylon, where his life gave out and his kingdom splintered. Then the Syrian Seleucids, then the Maccabees, the Jewish rebel warriors of Judea arose and scoured the temple and ruled a hundred years before the coming of fabled Rome. Even now, the hills are pockmarked with radicals. You live in a world crowded with sorcery and spirits. 
There are sorcerers in every town to curse your enemies for a fee, magicians to tell you the future. In the temple, you might at night see the spirits of Aphrodite, now Venus and Apollo, slink over the landscape to slouch at the temple wall and suck at the worship there. And still, the ancient Baal, called Molech, and his wife Ishtar, interrupt the dark with sacrificial fires burning as far as Carthage. In Judea, they whisper in the ear of the fey Jewish king Herod. There are angels and worshippers of angels. You cannot leave the city, you trip on a spirit. And in every town there's a person or two with a deadpan look. Try for their eye, and you'll see uncorrupted malice looking out as though through a peephole. Some foul thing has yanked on their body like an oven mitt to grasp at the world, and there's not a thing to do. Foul spirits take their due, and there's nobody to pull rank on them. One other thing. That old dream of an independent nation is gone. And so is the meat of the dream, a dwelling place for God among us. It's every day vanishing. The last king of Judah is gone like a myth. Their names are incantations, Azar, Zadok, and Akim. Their descendants are thick-fingered construction workers whose mean country slang is so hard to understand they can't order coffee. I'm descended from David on my father's side. That's good for you, but the deck still needs building. The promises of God are out there, stubby and fallow. And the great I am, who crushed Egypt with one hand, whose voice is like the sea, who competes for creation with spear and drawn sword. Who knows? The last thing he said was he promised to come. Suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. And then us. Modern day. Good Lord, where to start? Well, Rome burned. And a hundred things happened after that. The Germans called this feeling Weltschmerz, world weariness. So many things have happened, it's hard to parse out what's what, but locally, it's like this. We find ourselves in the same cycle of isolation, the same betrayal at work, the picayune neighbor leaving a note to move your car, move your church, quiet down, the same marital fight. It's starting along the familiar track, but there's nothing to do about it. And inside, you can feel, literally feel, your heart cracking on its original fault lines. Your alcoholic dad, depressed sibling, borderline mom, raging aunt, uncle, cousin, haughty vendor, blood-red road rager. The kid that didn't make it. The bright line of saints rising, worshipping, vanishing. The best friend who held on and held on and then let go. It's still true, everyone you know is a mist vanishing at dawn. We've got a hundred places calling for Jesus to become incarnate in our darkness. We are every one of us, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, standing before the imperial Babylonian king while he leans in and says, No God can save you from me. While we reply, he has and will. Good thing is, all the resources of heaven are open now, though it does tune the ear to all creation groaning. Good thing is, the dawn is already in the east, though it does aggravate our desire for so many folks to turn their faces, just a fraction to see it. 
The message of salvation has come down to us, passed hand to hand across millennia, like water coming from the bucket brigade. The last thing Jesus said was, there's no last thing this time. I'm sending my spirit to you. You can hear God, every one of you. You can walk with God, every one. You can join in the fight for creation, hand to hand, house to house. It is the most savage, knockdown fight between sworn enemies for a future which the one knows it will never know or see. It is for the last lingering moat of creation. Every last heart is a contest. As the triune God said through the prophets, I don't want anyone to die. If a sinning man turns from his ways, not one of the offenses he has committed will be remembered against him. He will live. As he said again through Peter, the patience of God is salvation. And though a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, the Lord does not hem and haw with a promise. Understand, he's on his way. You live in a world where the enemy put the axe to the root of meaning itself a long time ago, propped up the self-life and the flesh to open the sluice gate for the darkness. The effect is you can be whatever and nothing means anything. Humans and spirits vie in the temple now to gobble adoration. Let everyone do what is right in their eyes. Basically, the same crooked heart is an affliction everywhere. This is our moment. Jesus came and initiated the eschaton. We are living in the end of the world, though what we call the last things are really the first things are putting to rights of God's universe so we can finally embark with decent footing on the destiny for which all creation was built. In the background, you can, if you lean in, hear the chorus rising fraction by fraction. The air is packed with witnesses while the darkness and light grow up together. Make no mistake in Advent. We are calling for Emmanuel. We are not asking for what is best in man. We are not asking for justice. We are not asking for a little relief. We are asking Jesus Christ to come, the one who is like a thief in the night, the master returning, the king on the journey, the heavens vanishing, as Peter said, with a final roar. Come like you did before, the rod of Jesse, dayspring, desire of the everlasting hills. Jesus, Savior of the nations, come. So good. Yeah, so that's Advent. <laughs> We're going to try and figure out a button you guys can push to go back and listen to that again, but I think you might just have to scroll. What happened was... I begin to think about the longing in Advent. And I can't help, I just, I always think of the shepherds that the angels appear to on the night of Jesus' birth and co. It's interesting that based on their reaction, and we know from sort of background context, they knew what angels were. And this probably wasn't the first encounter they'd ever had with an angel, given the worshipers of angels and the cults of angelic whatever, that were happening all around them. But it just went, wow, you are an heir of the promise. You're Jewish. And the last prophet of exile disappeared four freaking hundred years ago, and we haven't heard anything. And all of these apocalyptic events have come. And then 
here he is. And literally, I just love in the organization of the Old Testament, the last things in the last book of the Old Testament are the one you want is coming. I will come. Turn the page, New Testament. Turn the page. Here's the genealogy of Jesus down to Joseph. And it's like, oh my gosh. And we need to do that again and just look at where are we exactly? Wow. We're at the end of 2,000 years, which is so annoying that Peter says, thousand years is like a day to him and a day is like a thousand yeah, years. I don't particularly like that. Don't I, you just I think that's that? where I got the, the Aslan, I call all times soon thing. And just, <sighs> the dude is coming. And what we're expecting is, wouldn't it be great if this year on Christmas, Jesus came back? Wouldn't it be great if the day after Christmas, he came back? My birthday shortly after that, that would be a great day for Christ to return. And to look around going, wow, our post-apocalyptic world is calling Jesus. And he's not situated in the past. But it is like the blowing of Susan's horn in the book Prince Caspian, where it's like, you're calling the king out of the high past. Like, you are calling this person in this season of waiting. And so many of the things built into it intensify, you know, that experience. Like if you do Advent, you will learn very quickly that on sort of a rotation, the four Sundays of Advent have readings. And depending on what year it is, there's a different set of readings from the Bible, but they correspond to common themes that relate to the themes of that first day. First Sunday, hope. First Sunday, patriarchs expectation of Christ's second coming. And one of the readings is from Jeremiah. It's really short and it's just this one. It's from Jeremiah 33. The days are coming when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and Judah. In those days, I will raise up for David a just shoot. He shall do what is right and just in the land. In those days, Judah shall be safe and Jerusalem shall dwell secure. This is what they shall call her, the Lord, our justice. Cool little excerpt. Important thing to know about where that's situated inside the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is an anthology of writings from the priest Jeremiah inside Jerusalem, who the first part of the book is going, Israel, you broke covenants. And it happens to be a reality of living in this universe that a broken covenant has consequences in the same way that a two by four is just a two by four. So it's like a wonderful thing. If you try to swing it at someone's head, it stays hard. It's awesome that we can make promises. And if promises are broken, they have consequences. It's telling them, you guys have started burning your kids in fires to the god Moloch and I told you we agreed that you would not do that so that my presence could stay among you. And here's what's going to happen now. And Jeremiah is pointing to the north going, there's Babylon and they're coming. And he's right. Babylon is on its way. Jeremiah is going to see the siege of Jerusalem. And he's talking about the exile that all Israel is going to be taken into. And then this, there's this little section in sort of the 30s to 40s in Jeremiah where it goes, but even though the kings of Judah are going to be functionally erased. Like, let's just think of Joseph of the line of kings, and he's a construction worker. So it would be like the guy who's, you know, across the street from you who 
is a great guy with a carpeting business. And you go, oh, that's the, you know, that's the descendant of King Arthur. And you go, what happened to the kingdom of King Arthur that that's the descendant of King Arthur? I mean, he's a great guy, but where's his castle? Jeremiah goes, the kings are going to be gone, but then suddenly out of them, it's going to come this person. And he's speaking into the middle of exile and into the middle of darkness, saying this thing is coming, which holla also happens to be our position in this age where we're like, yes, Christ has come. Yes, living in the kingdom is one of our options and everything really can be different. And we are in the middle where Jesus goes like the lightness and darkness will grow up together. The one not being trimmed down. Like this is that we in weeds thing where it goes, there's a lot of crap, you know, going on. Like yesterday was the due date of our like daughter that died during pregnancy. And that is an advent reality going, Jesus, come into this spot. Like I'm expecting you here and I'm expecting the full restoration that is only available upon your return. And you have promised to return. Yeah, I think for me, that's the value of doing Advent. If it's not hitting you yet, the story of Christmas does get wrapped up in tinsel and mistletoe and Bing Crosby songs. And it does become a season of stress, anxiety, and consumerism. Even at its best, it becomes something past tense, a past celebration. And the power of stepping into these stories and stepping into (laughs) what these hopes are is that it cannot help but trigger ways that you are thinking about it now or are not thinking about it now because it is the same. If the same story hasn't ended, the same story is still unfolding. And as an aside, I love watching Anthony Bourdain at his CNN shows on Netflix, Parts Unknown. In the past, it feels like the seasons have been very like explorative and exploratory, inviting and checking out these new places and diving in. The last few seasons, and I, I don't know if it's now colored because of his suicide, but the last few seasons, and I'm coming to the end of what they filmed, the story begins to kind of feel dark the places that he goes, the, the messages of the people, whether it's Puerto Rico or Seattle, or uh, there's just this tone to the world that does not sound far off from what you just read. And I'm watching the show to kind of get transported off to faraway places and imagine foods I have not eaten. And there I am kind of going, what is this season about? Like, what is going on in the world? What do I do with them? And where do I situate them? Because they will either be too much for me to grapple with the loss of a daughter and honoring the due date the loss of friends, the loss of just all of the things that this year has held. And though we are not, so we're not, because we're not liturgical, it is the end. And we kind of do look back on the last 12 months and go like, what? And it almost is like being punch drunk. It's almost like being, it's so much for the heart and soul that there can be this like dizziness that comes and a dissociation with the story. And Advent is the invitation to reorient and remember and name and put things back in the bookshelf that have all gotten sort of knocked out of the, uh, that without it, I think we'll continue being punch drunk and we'll continue being 
unaware of what we do when we're gassing people at the border. And when you're dealing with loss, it just kind of all piles up and you go shopping. Right. So Advent is the smelling salts. It starts like the beginning, well, the chronological beginning. That's really book two of the Aeneid. It starts with the fall of Troy, where Aeneas has great line of, like, my friends speaking to his men, sort of the last coherent band inside Troy as it's getting destroyed. My friends, desperate warriors who have tried in vain. You see how stands the fate of our affairs. Our gods are gone. Let's go die in battle. The Advent celebration starts sort of spreading the arms, go, here is the state of our affairs. And list whatever you like. Whatever apocalyptic feature of our moment, whether national or personal, you see going on. And then it goes into the story and it goes, once upon a time, there was a wily desert warrior surrounded by elite fighting men whose name was Abram. And after we don't know how many years of being mysterious and hidden, the uncreated God appeared and made a promise with him to restore all humanity through his descendants. And you go, whoa, that's interesting. And then here's how the story unfolded and here's what happened. And then it goes, and then, and then, and then all of his descendants and their people, you know, and then the ark was taken to war and lost forever and no one knows where it is. And then everyone in Israel was taken into the great Persian empire of Babylon. And that's where they were when the first part of the story ended. And then we start the, but God was going to become incarnate in the way that he promised the savior that you are longing for will come to you. Go, and he came. And the thing that makes our lives meaningful now is actually not some false uh, separation between his two comings, but the union of his coming once that orients us in desire towards his coming again. And that's where Bart go, this is Advent faith. Advent faith is the faith that understands we are directed and we are hopeful because we understand that the two comings of Christ can only be read together. 